The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Hey, good evening. So glad to be here with you. I'm Jesse Lusco. And have you guys been enjoying Bible from 30,000 feet? And so rad. Pastor Skip will be back. He'll continue on through the law of Moses with us. Going to be super rad. If you're new here, we're doing this thing where we're kind of like soaring through the scriptures in like a year. Super great way to get to know the, the big picture of the scripture. I just want to warn you, though, um, next week, all of you will need to take your shoes off before entering the auditorium. And anyone who doesn't want to go through the metal detectors will receive a thorough pat down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen. But we, we're, we're maybe a little extra with, uh, with all this stuff. I love it. I love our teams just going all out. It's so fun. There will be no pat-downs. You can keep your shoes on. But, uh, man, isn't airline travel kind of funny, though? It's so interesting. I mean, you can be on a flight, and the stewardess goes by with a cart, and, you, and you know, you're maybe you have your head down, have your headphones on, and then you go, what? Ma'am, ma'am, uh, excuse me, ma'am, I, I, I didn't get any of those peanuts. But if, like, some guy came up to you on the street with a same bag of peanuts, you'd be like, what the heck is this? Get this away from me. I don't want to eat that. It's inedible. I don't want it anywhere near you. It's just just, the whole experience of airline travel is so funny. Uh, You know, you're sitting there next to somebody. I I was on a flight recently, and this guy's like, oh, the Wi-Fi is so slow on this plane. And I'm like, you do realize you're in a 950,000-pound tube shuttling through space, don't you? So it's so easy to take things for granted. And uh, is anybody here, like, afraid to fly? You can be honest. I know some people are afraid to fly. And I meet people who've maybe never left the state of New Mexico and stuff, don't really like flying, don't enjoy it too much. But my dad was flying from uh, Miami to Portland to come visit us a few years back. And he gets to Portland, and my little son is there. And, uh, and you know, my son is three years old, Lion. He goes up to him, and he's like... Papa Chip, how was your flight? Did you have any turbulence? He's fascinated. He just loves turbulence. He's just fascinated by it. But, uh, you know, you do experience turbulence on some flights, and sometimes it can be really extreme. You know, there's, there's stories of, of flight attendants you know, smashing into the ceiling and just really wild things when you experience that rough air on a flight. Turbulence is caused by instability in the air around, caused by winds, air pressure, temperature, differentials, uh, nearby storms, jet streams, weather fronts, and other atmospheric conditions. And, uh, you know, I was on a flight coming back from the East Coast, and, and there was actually a lightning storm, like, right outside the window of our flight. The plane's shaking and rattling, and the people are, are puking, then saying the rosary, then puking again. You know, it, it's, just, it's just gnarly, out of control. And uh, I actually read a story. This was, you know, obviously this was... And I just want to up front say, like, I'm not trying to freak you out, you know. Uh, flying by airplane is actually safer than driving in a car. So airlines are really safe. Not very many crashes happen. But, uh, but I am a bit of a shadow soul. So, like, when I heard we're doing the Bible 30K, I, I just couldn't help but, like, oh, yeah, flight attendants, stewardesses, seats on stage. Let's talk about crashes. Let's talk about destruction. Give me the microphone, you know. And uh, United Airlines, a few years back, uh, uh, United Airlines Flight 811 from Honolulu to New Zealand. Um, there are 355 passengers on board, and the roof um, near the cockpit ripped open, and nine people got sucked out of the flight. 
you know, to their death. It's not funny. It's awful. It's, it's terrifying and tragic. And in the night sky at 20,000 feet, never to be seen again, the flight was able to turn around and land even with part of the roof ripped off, but super extreme. But I think that actually is a pretty good metaphor for what I'd like to talk to you about tonight. In 1990, you know, MC Hammer was wearing parachute pants. Macaulay Culkin was living alone. Like, this was the year in which I was born. And in 1990, 6% of Americans said they had no faith. Fast forward to 2017, that number had increased to more conservative estimates. The lowest estimates say it had grown to 25%. 1990, 6% of Americans had no faith. 2017, that number had increased to over 25%. Approximately 80 million Americans today don't believe in any religion whatsoever. Now, about 25 million of them are agnostics and atheists. But I want to paint this picture for you that about 80, you know, close to 80 million of them have been sucked out of our churches. They've been sucked out into the night sky. They've been sucked out of our churches. And some of them are your friends. Some of them are your neighbors. Some of them are your coworkers. Some of them are your kids. Some of them went to the children's ministry over there. And you talk to them now and they don't believe in Jesus. And, and people in my generation, people my age, they don't believe in God. And maybe they don't think God's important to their life. I saw two guys at a coffee shop yesterday. And I just asked them, hey, do you guys go to church? And they're like, oh, no, I don't go to church. And I asked them both why. And, you know, they, the answers were so typical of what you hear from so many different people. Now, flying in this kind of a cultural climate you are going to experience turbulence. Your faith is going to hit storm clouds of doubt, storm clouds of skepticism, storm clouds of questions. Barna Group says that two-thirds of Christians experience doubt. And if your kids do come to you doubting, don't scold them, don't reprimand them. That is the least helpful thing you can possibly do. You know, if, if you're not doubting, you're probably not thinking. You know, I'm a doubter. I've experienced so much doubt. But I've, I've found that through the doubt, through investigating and, and seeking out evidence, that the drought of doubt can actually deepen the roots of faith. Now, yeah, you could clap for that. Now, so that's kind of the bleak picture, is that, is that America is more and more and more and more becoming secular and atheistic and and materialistic and all these things and not really believing in Jesus. And, and sometimes we like to kind of like, uh, you know, bring out the funeral people and, and, and act as though, you know, it's going to be the end of uh, the death of Christianity. I do think it's worth pointing out something uh, kind of interesting. Pew Research also found that the 21st century is going to have more religious faith globally than the 20th century. The world as a whole is actually growing more religious. And uh, a big part of that is due to conversion. And I just want to let you know that more people in... People sometimes like to say, oh yeah, Christianity, that's a white European religion. That's a white Anglo-Saxon religion. Actually, it's a Middle Eastern religion. 
And more people in the world today who believe in Jesus are brown than white. You know, Christianity, uh, most Christians in the world today actually live in uh, Central and South America. In the last hundred years, Christianity has had explosive growth in Africa. And uh, the gospel actually made it to Africa before it made it to Europe, i.e. the Ethiopian eunuch, BT Dubs, just to let you know. But uh, um, the gospel is having crazy, crazy, wild, contagious growth, not only in, uh, in like less modern third world countries, but it's also having explosive growth in extremely technologically advanced cultures like South Korea. Uh, the largest church in the world is in South Korea. And it's having growth in China. And there are actually sociologists coming from China to America to study Christianity because they think the only way they can turn China into a democracy is through Christianity. So Christianity is actually on the rise globally. And here in the United States, it's also worth pointing out that although in born-again churches, churches that emphasize conversion... There are people leaving the church. We are losing people. There are people who grow up in church, who bail on the faith. There is a lot of that happening. But from between 2007 and 2017, Christianity in uh, churches that are Orthodox, that believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, emphasize conversion, they've actually grown by 2 million people. So we're converting more people than we're losing, even here in the United States. Uh, A lot of the churches that are totally dying are actually the most liberal Um, Not liberal politically, I'm not saying that, I'm talking about liberal uh, theologically, where they don't really believe in the Bible, they don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. Those are the churches that are actually hemorrhaging the most and losing the most people. But uh, um, uh, what I really want to articulate to you, though, is this. That in this culture, your faith is going to hit turbulence. You're going to have friends and neighbors who ask you questions. If you're thinking, if you're researching, you're going to experience doubt because the culture is going to press in upon you because we live in an incredibly skeptical culture. And I want to give you the tools to buckle in and not get sucked off the plane and also give you the ability to help stabilize the faith of others. Now, before we go on into any of like kind of the answers to questions people have and all that stuff, I just want to share one verse with you that I think is essential and that's this, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, you could write it down, says this, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance, that they might know the truth. I'm not coming out here to help you blast people. And tell you like, ooh, I took you to school, son. Take that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, atheist. Like, I'm not coming out here to do that. Like, like that is not in the spirit of Jesus at all. You know, atheists, aren't these like horned villains? They don't have fangs. Your non-believing neighbors aren't these like awful bad people. You know what? Atheists are made in the image of God. Atheists are loved by Jesus. Some of them are wonderful people. They're made in God's image. And they're great. If your kids have doubts, in, in, you know, don't come at them and, 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 and throw the gauntlet down and get hard on them. We're not saved by how much we know. We're saved by who we know. And if your theology doesn't lead to humility, it might as well be heresy. If your theology doesn't lead to humility, it might as well be heresy. Um, I also want to say 
that uh, that's, I just am so grateful for our pastor, Pastor Skip, because he's always included logic and reasons and answered questions. He's always included evidence for the faith in his messages. And I'm so stoked about that. And uh, I'm just so thankful for him. And the way I'm going to kind of structure the rest of the message tonight is Pew Research in 2016 interviewed some of these uh, religiously unaffiliated people, people who have no faith, and asked them, why don't you believe in God? Why don't you go to church? And they answered in their own words. And all of my points tonight are answers that they give. They're answers that I've heard. They're answers that the guys at Starbucks gave me yesterday. Uh, uh, these are the answers, and I'm going to kind of respond to those. I'm not going to be able to respond exhaustively. If you want to research more, um, I'd encourage you to check out the apologetics section in Parchments or on Amazon. Uh, I don't really like the word apologetics. It's honestly pretty bad branding. Because what does it sound like? It sounds like, I'm so sorry that I'm a Christian. I'm so, I'm so, I know, I can't help it. I'm so sorry. But that's actually not what apologetics means. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. It's got the word logic in it. So think of it like this. Apologetics, logic, it's the logic of the faith. It's the logic of the faith. That's what apologetics is. And if, I were to, if, if you want to give a book, I mean, you could send this message if you like what I have to say to your son, your daughter, your friend, your neighbor, your friends who are atheists. I'd love for you to send this message with them if you like what I say. I guess I haven't said it yet. But, uh, but if you want to buy a book for one, you know, some Christian books, I'm going to be honest, some apologetics books don't live by that Second Timothy verse. They lack humility. They're kind of snarky and mean. Uh, but one guy who I would recommend that I would give his book to any atheist, I've given away hundreds of copies of it, is, is books by Timothy Keller. Not the mayor, all right? And the mayor does look like Harvey Dent, doesn't he? Does anybody else know what I'm talking about, Gotham City? No, Timothy Keller actually lives in Gotham City. The Timothy Keller I'm talking about lives in Manhattan, started a church in Manhattan. He wrote a book called Reason for God, uh, and he also wrote a book called Making Sense of God. Give that to your son or your daughter or your neighbor. It's a phenomenally good book. But uh, but we're going to get into this. So here here are the big objections people have for why they don't believe in God, why they don't believe in Jesus. So the most common answers that were on Pew Research uh, survey where they asked people to answer in their own word. Number one is this. I'm a person of reason and science, not faith. I'm a person of reason and science, not faith. Now I want to start off saying this. Blind faith is not biblical faith. And things that are done in Jesus' name are not the same thing as things that are commanded in Jesus' word. Just because some Christian said, I don't know, you just have to believe. Just have faith. Just believe. Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't understand this about science. I don't understand this about... No, you just have to believe. Just have faith. That's not biblical faith. And... and, and there is the truth that we can love people. I've heard people say, we need to just love people in the kingdom. Don't give them answers. Don't give them reasons. That, that's actually not true either. Because the Bible says to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you think you can only love people in the kingdom of God, you're neglecting the fact that God made our brains. God made us rational, reasonable creatures. And so you can't, you have to give people the, the potent combination of love and logic. Love and logic. That's what you have to give people. But uh, um, ten times in the book of Acts, it says that Paul reasoned with people. Ten times it says Paul reasoned with people in the marketplace. When he, when he goes to Mars Hill, uh, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't even quote the scriptures once. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that's, like, that's totally the way to go. But when he goes to Mars Hill, he's quoting Greek poets trying to convince them to believe in Jesus. 
It's, it's amazing. He, he's reasoning with people in a way that they can understand. And I love that Pastor Skip has always incorporated those sorts of things, studies and, and, and evidence and archaeology into his messages. I love that so much. But basically what our culture tells us is this. You're a person of faith and I'm a person of reason. You believe, but I believe in science. You're a person of faith. I'm a person of reason. and, And usually it comes with some condescension. But what I want you to realize is this. John Lennox, who teaches, who's a scientist at Oxford, He's a mathematician. He's brilliant. I mean, you're not like some dope if you're teaching at Oxford. But, uh, but John Lennox says this. He's a, he's a Christian. He loves the cross of Jesus. And he, te- he also uh, has degrees in the philosophy of science. And he says, before you can do any science, you have to make philosophical faith assumptions. You have to just make these assumptions. Most people don't think about it. But you just have to assume that your mind works. And that the universe isn't just a mass of chaos, but that the universe can actually be understood. That the universe uh, operates in a logical and understandable way. And that your brain actually has the ability to tell you things about what's real and, and, and how things work. But here's the deal. If there is nothing but biology, chemistry, and physics, if this is it... If the physical world is the only world, there is nothing spiritual, there is no God, there are no angels, there is no heaven, there is no hell. If it is just pure, raw biology, chemistry, and physics, then all we are are computers made of meat. That's all we are. We're computers made of meat. And what Daniel Dennett, one of like the hardcore new atheists says, he's an evolutionary biologist, Daniel Dennett says... That that's all we are. We're computers made of meat. He doesn't say that, but in as many words he says that. He says he says that if that's true, then free will is an illusion. And he goes so far as to say consciousness is an illusion. You think you're conscious, but you're not. You're just operating a program. You all you everything you do is just what you're programmed to do. But here's the thing: that knife cuts both ways. That means reason must be an illusion. And and that means Daniel Dennett must not have free will. Daniel Dennett must not have consciousness. You see, you think that you're an atheist because you're rational and you're logical and you reason your way there. But if atheism is true, you're an atheist simply because your biology programmed you to be that way. And that's what we call, guys, a suicidal, self-defeating, self-sabotaging perspective and worldview. And that's why even some atheists, like Thomas Nagel, who's one of the most honest atheists out there, he teaches at NYU, Thomas Nagel wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, and the subtitle of that is, Why the Neo-Darwinian Materialist View of Reality is Almost Certainly False. I'll say that again. Why the Neo-Darwinian Materialist, the view that all there is is matter, view of reality is almost certainly false. And he goes on and he says... Evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability and therefore undermines itself. You see, if your brain is an accident of nature, 
you have no reason to trust your brain. I like that that made you laugh. I'm going to say something even funnier. If I'm just a chip wearing pants, why should I believe any of my science? Charles Darwin even realized that. He wrote in the letter to a friend, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's minds which have risen from the minds of lower animals are of any value or trustworthy at all. If I'm just a monkey wearing pants, what does it even matter? Ah! (laughs) You know? Um, Now, the moment I quit believing in God, I have no reason to believe in reason. The moment I quit believing in God, I have no reason to believe in reason. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist till he was 40, who also taught at Oxford and at Cambridge, C.S. Lewis said, I rejected the materialist, just like all there is is matter, there's no God, there's no... I rejected the materialist view of things long before I became a Christian. For this reason, he said, this inconsistency ruins the whole thing. Logic led C.S. Lewis to abandon his atheism. BT Dubs, I saw a Twitter thing saying that their Netflix is making some Chronicles of Narnia series. That's going to be fantastic. Anyways, C.S. Lewis, super smart guy, but he also read the Chronicles of Narnia. Just letting you guys know, okay? Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did. Maybe you're going to check out the series. Maybe you're going to read all of C.S. Lewis' books because he's really smart and it'll help you and make you better, make you better following Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> I read this article in the New York Times, though. Okay, so, so John Lennox says there's the reliability of the mind, but the other thing is the regularity of nature. Or, or to put it another way, the fact that our brain works and the fact that you have to assume that the universe is understandable, that the universe isn't just complete chaos, but that it actually operates in a way that can be studied. Um, there's an agnostic physicist at the University of Arizona, and he wrote an article in the New York Times that, said, that was titled this. He's an agnostic, not even a Christian, but he says this. He, he wrote a very controversial article in the New York Times that said, Taking Science on Faith. That was the title. And he went on and said this. To be a scientist, you had to have faith that the universe is governed by dependable, immutable, absolute, universal, mathematical laws of an unspecified origin. You've got to believe that these laws won't fail, that we won't wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden things that are cold are turning hot on their own and and that the speed of light is just changing and the speed of light's faster today than it was yesterday. You have to just believe that. Over the years, I've often asked my physicist colleagues why the laws of physics are what they are. Their answers vary from, that's not a scientific question, to nobody knows, to my favorite, There's no reason they are what they are. They just are. The idea that laws exist reasonlessly is deeply anti-rational. To say there's no reason for the laws of physics is to make a mockery of science. He goes on and he says that, that the answer that the reason for the laws of physics is God is like the best explanation we have. There's literally no other explanation. There's no really other way to study it because you have to assume the laws of physics before you can even study anything. And and it's the best explanation that we possibly have that God is the logic behind the universe, that he's the lawgiver. Um, You know, Bertrand Russell and David Hume, both crazy atheists, kind of realized this too. And they essentially said, we have no idea why the laws of physics are staying the same right now 
and no reason to assume they'll stay the same in the future. Like, why aren't the planets just flying out of control? And why do electrons orbit neutrons? And, and, and why, do, why does everything hold together? Why, isn't, why do the tides ebb and flow? Why do acorns always turn to oak trees? Why is everything so consistent? And they said, we have no idea why that's happening, and we cannot figure it out. Um, to just go a little bit deeper, and we're going to get out of the science stuff in just a second. I know some of you are going to into a coma. You're like, man... I haven't been in high school in a long time. That's uh, uh, what some of you are doing. But, uh, you know, Francis Collins, who was an atheist, became a Christian, went on to map the human genome, and uh, just like an unbelievably intelligent guy, Francis Collins says that there's fundamental regularities and constants in physics, the speed of light, the strength and weakness of nuclear forces, uh, the, the, the gravitational constant, all of these things are so precise, they're to the millionth of a millionth, so that Stephen Hawking even said, and, and one of his partners who won a Nobel Peace Prize, who was also a physicist, said that the likelihood of a universe like ours that has all of those physical constants in it is, is, is the likelihood of 1 in 10 to the 123rd power. Let me put that in perspective for you. If you were to write that out on pieces of paper and write out all the zeros, all the zeros, you would fill the known universe with paper. That's how many zeros it is. That's how unlikely the odds are. Um, now, uh, some people, the way they try to explain this is they say, you know, you're right, that is unlikely. But there could be billions of universes and there could be multiverses and there could be so many different universes. But here's the thing. Wonder how much evidence we have of multiverses? I don't know how much proof we have of multiverses. None. That has more in common with Rick and Morty and Doctor Who. It's fiction. You know what I'll say a lot of people are believing today is they're believing that we're actually living in a simulation. Have you heard this? Neil deGrasse Tyson and Elon Musk. We're living in this. This is a video game. We're living inside of the Matrix, guys. People would rather believe nothing is real than that God is real. People would rather believe that nothing is real than that God is real. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, late atheist, hated Christianity, the crazy atheist, but he was interviewed one time, and, uh, and he was interviewed, and somebody asked him, like, be honest, like, what argument do you think is the most powerful? And he said, hands down, the fine-tuning, the 15 physical constants of physics, that's not a trivial argument, that's a powerful argument. And none of us can write it off as trivial. That's what Christopher Hitchens says. John says in John 1, 1, that Jesus is the logic behind the universe. That Jesus is the reason why your brain works. That Jesus is the reason why the laws of physics work, why everything holds together. Jesus is the reason. That is the logic of faith. We, we have faith, yes, we have faith in logic. And that Jesus is that logic. Our next thing is this. More harm has been done by religion than any other thing. Have you heard this? this? This one you can relate with, can't you? Doesn't this one like cut you deep when you hear it? When, when you hear people say, what about all the wars that have been fought in the name of religion? What about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? What about the pastors who fly on private jets and sleep with prostitutes? What about the priests who are pedophiles? 
What about the popes who are covering it up? And you hear that and your heart aches. You know, Nathan told David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, you've given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Christian, I just want to let you know, your actions, your attitude, your adultery will become someone's excuse to reject Jesus. It will become someone's excuse to reject Jesus. That's serious, but it is an excuse. I'll tell you why. Hypocritical Christians are actually a great reason to believe in Jesus because he was constantly warning about them. Hypocritical Christians are actually a great reason to believe in Jesus. He was constantly warning about them. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, watch out. They come to you dressed in sheep's clothing, but inward they are are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now, Jesus was constantly going head to head with religious people. Don't you realize that the Pharisees, the Pharisees memorized the Bible. They believed in God. They prayed the right prayers. They went to the right temple, but they were greedy, racist, abusers of women, and they killed the Son of God. And Jesus was constantly warning that we not become Pharisees. I mean, one of the main warnings of Jesus is that Christians can become Pharisees, that we can turn into Pharisees. But here's what you need to know. If their fruits aren't of Jesus, their roots aren't in Jesus. If their fruits aren't of Jesus, their roots aren't in Jesus. Yes, religious people have killed lots of people. They killed lots of innocent people. Religious people killed Jesus. But don't let fake Christians keep you from the real Christ. Don't let fake Christians keep you from the real Christ. Now, I want to pull back, and I do want to say this, though. How much harm has been done in the name of atheism? How much, how much harm has been done by people who are atheists? I mean, let's, let's consider that for a moment. You know that 94 million people were murdered by communist regimes? Makes Hitler look like child's play. 94 million people were murdered under Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot. And the list goes on. Now, a lot of atheists get offended when you bring that up. They say, oh, well, that's not fair. They weren't Marxists. That's not the same thing. I'm not a Marxist. I'm not an atheist. Don't associate me with them. And, and they say this. But let's hear what the, the, the communists had to say themselves. Vladimir Lenin, who was the first chairman of the Soviet Union, said this. Atheism is a natural and inseparable part of Marxism. Of the theory and practice of scientific socialism, religion is the opium of the people. This saying of Marx is the cornerstone of the entire ideology of Marxism. That's straight from the horse's mouth. They're saying the reason why we're able to kill all of these people and establish this new world order is because we're atheists. 
That's what Vladimir Lenin said. 94 million people in one century. It, it, it's breathtaking. It's, it's astonishing. You know, I was watching this TV show, and it was a pretty intense TV show, but it, it, had this, it had Billy Bob Thornton in it, and it had Martin Freeman. Uh, you know who Martin Freeman is? He was the Hobbit. He was the only white guy in Black Panther. <laughs> but Martin Freeman uh, was in this show called Fargo, and he's an insurance salesman, and, and, and uh, this contract killer who's an atheist named Lauren Malvo, Billy Bob Thornton, sitting with him at a diner, and he says this. Your problem is you've lived your whole life like there's rules. There aren't any. We used to be gorillas. And that night, Martin Freeman goes and beats his wife to death with a hammer. And that's a secular show realizing, hey, that's where atheism can very logically lead. Now, I want to be careful here because most atheists in the U.S. are not monsters, They're made in God's image. They're moral people. They're wonderful people. They care about the poor. They care about justice. They care about equality. But I want to ask this question. You say, I'm just a person of science. I'm just a person of reason. I only believe things that are provable. Well, I asked the guy at Starbucks yesterday. I said, hey, do you believe in equal rights? Rights for refugees, rights for the poor, rights for people of other countries, rights for women? He's like, absolutely I do. And I said, what proof do you have that human rights exist? He said, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And he, and he quickly changed the subject. Can you look at human rights under a microscope? Can you look at human rights uh, you know, through a telescope? Can you, can you dissect them in your laboratory? No, you believe in human rights by faith. Because everybody lives by both faith and reason. People say, well, everyone believes in human rights. That's not true at all. <laughs> Most cultures throughout human history had no sense of equality. In fact, many of the people in the world today, maybe most of the people living in the world today don't don't have a Western view of human rights. They don't believe in human rights in Saudi Arabia or or huge parts of Africa or in large parts of China or Korea or Iraq. They, They don't believe in equal rights at all. What makes us equal? I mean, we're not equal in size. We're not equal in speed. We're not equal in intelligence. We're not equal in good looks. We're not equal in tennis. Matt beats me every time. You know, what makes us equal? What makes us equal? Well, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist, uh, he, man, this guy was like pedal to the metal atheist, all right? He thought this thing through. Because what I've realized is that most secular people have not thought through the implications of their belief. Most secular people have not thought through the implications of their belief. But Friedrich Nietzsche sure did. He said this. Another Christian concept, no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. The concept of equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all other theories of equal rights. He says the only reason why people believe in equal rights, what makes us equal? Well, what gives us inalienable rights? inalienable, they can't be taken away, what gives us these equal rights? The fact that we're all equally made by God, we're all equally loved by God, we're all equally sinners before God, we're all equally able to be saved by the grace of God. That's the only basis for equality. And more and more philosophers are acknowledging that. You know, the other night I was reading Nietzsche's Critique of utilitarianism, real casually, you know. 
as one does. And I go into my room and I tell my wife all about it. I'm getting all excited. And then I kind of realize like how insane that sounds and like how unusual that is. And and I just go to her. I go, do you ever wish I was just really into sports? (laughs) Fantastic. But come on, you guys are the Wednesday night crowd. You can put your thinking caps on. (laughs) But why do we care about equal rights? I mean, think about it. Why do we grant equal rights? And I I mean this not in an offensive way, but I just want you to think, to think about it. Why do we grant equal rights to people with disabilities? Why do we grant equal rights to refugees? Why do we grant equal rights to convicted criminals? Why do we feel like we need to intervene and stop things like genital mutilation on the other side of the world and and break into sweatshops? Why why do we care about the equal rights of some kid in a sweatshop making, making our Nikes on the other side of the world? Why do we think all of them have equal rights? The answer you'll get, and it's a good answer, it's strong, it's compelling when you hear it. Most atheists will say, well, here's the thing. We evolved to feel empathy. And empathy makes us more fit for survival because it leads to social cooperation and we survive better in groups than not in groups. And that sounds like a really strong argument. But why isn't empathy celebrated as a virtue all across the world in every culture? Now, where did this idea that empathy is a virtue really come from? I was doing a little research and about 10 different Roman and Greek philosophers, maybe 12, it was a great deal of them, Greek and Roman philosophers had this to say. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, it is only weak eyes which weep in sympathy. To show pity is the mark of a weak character, one which a good man will avoid. There wasn't much empathy going on as they were crucifying tens of thousands of people. There wasn't a whole lot of empathy happening at the Colosseum and the gladiatorial games. I mean, this was the most advanced civilization on the face of the earth, but they didn't really care so much for empathy. They certainly didn't extend empathy to the people that they were conquering. You know what Nietzsche would say, and this is, this is rowdy, and i got to respect Nietzsche because he's at least consistent. But he says this, yeah, sure, we got here because of empathy and social cooperation, our group helping one another, people being generous. Sure, we got here because of that. But if survival is our only purpose, you have to recognize we also got here because our ancestors raped and pillaged and plundered and conquered. And he says, you're choosing one over the other. But Nietzsche would say, oh, all you humanitarian, you're secular humanists, you're just covert Christians. And you're not admitting it to yourself. That's what he would say. And his case is strong. We celebrate empathy in the West as a virtue strictly and exclusively because of Christianity. Because Jesus came and when somebody asked him, hey, who is my neighbor? He said, Samaritans are your neighbors. The the weak, the poor, the crippled, they're your neighbors. Your enemies, they're your neighbors. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. That's why we celebrate empathy in the West, and there is no other explanation. Now, the whole idea of evolution is that, you know, you're most suited to survive in your environment. But if you say that morals evolved... 
you have to acknowledge that that means morals change. And if morals change, you can't object to somebody changing them for their own benefit. That logic follows, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense. The whole purpose of evolution is you adapt to fit in your environment. Well, hey, you know, in the past they believed in human rights, but, you know, that doesn't benefit me in the present. So I'm going to be more adapt to my environment right now and do whatever the heck I want to. My name's Harvey Weinstein. You know? You can't object to it. Um, I'm looking at the time. Yeah, I've still got time. This is great. Wednesday nights are so long. They're so leisurely. I'm just going to walk around like this for a while. I don't even know why. They're so... You've got like an hour. It's crazy. You've got to see this. And if life has no purpose, it's impossible to say that somebody's doing it wrong or right. If life has if life has no purpose, there's no way to say that. And, and in the end, it doesn't matter. Because what's going to happen in the end? You're like, well, I, I want to leave a good world for my children after I die. But what's going to happen a little while after that? Well, your children are going to die, and then your children's children are going to die. And then their children are going to die. And then one day civilization itself is going to die. And one day the universe is going to go cold and dark. And nobody's going to remember anything or anyone. And that's exactly the same end for Elon Musk as it is for Charles Manson. It's, it's exactly the same end for Mother Teresa as it is for Joseph Stalin. Nothing matters. But, it, but if God created us and filled us with purpose, and if we're made in his image, everything matters. Can we put our hands together for that? <clears throat> now, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, you think, well, and, and just by the way, Joseph Stalin died peacefully in his bed. Like, he didn't get justice in this life. It doesn't matter what you do if there's no God. But if God does exist and everything matters and there's going to be justice for everyone and no sin goes unpaid for. But, you know, you think, oh, well, that was in Soviet. I don't know what those Soviets were up to. That was crazy. I don't, I don't want to think about Hitler. I don't want to think about Germany. I don't want to think about the fact that Hitler uh, gave Benito Mussolini a 24-volume set of the complete works of Frederick Nietzsche for his 60th birthday. Uh, that freaks me out. You know, we're in America. We're civilized over here. Well, there's a little Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes who said this, morals are more or less arbitrary. He was an atheist. He said, morals are more or less arbitrary. Do you like sugar in your coffee or don't you? So as to truth, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Supreme Court justice. Well, then Francis Galton comes around, Darwin's cousin, and he's thinking about natural selection and all of this, and he starts thinking, well, there's natural selection. Why, why can't we just do uh, actual selection? And he starts publishing these ideas, and a little doctor in Virginia named Do uh, Dr. Albert Sidney Pretty comes along, and he says, you know what we should start doing? We should start sterilizing criminals. We should start forcibly giving disabled people hysterectomies and bisectomies. We shouldn't allow these people who are bad for society to breed. 
And that causes some controversy, and so that goes to the Supreme Court. And Oliver Wendell Holmes has this to say. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. And right here in the U.S. of A., for the next 40 years, 65,000 people are forcibly sterilized. I don't care what you believe. All I care is about how you behave. What you believe affects how you behave. Um, I can't get into this too much, but I just want to share just a couple quick things. Christianity gets a lot of bad PR. And I just want to give it a little bit of good PR really fast. In ancient Rome, it was law that you had to stone to death your deformed children or leave them exposed on a hillside. If your children were born blind or with a disability, it was Roman law that you had to stone them to death. But then Christianity comes around, and around the time when Christianity becomes legalized, all of a sudden that becomes outlawed in the 4th century. In the Roman Empire, one-third to one-half of the Roman Empire were slaves. But Paul comes in and he writes, In Christ there's neither barbarian nor Scythian, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ. And John Chrysostom writes about how in Christian churches, a slave and a master would both become Christians, and they would have slave-liberating services in their services, one of the early church fathers. And he says that in Christ there is no slave. Buy a slave, teach him a trade, and then let him go. Uh, a little bit more time you know, goes by, and, and something incredible happens. In ancient Rome, there was a law that Julius Caesar ratified into law. It was a tradition. Julius Caesar made it law called Patria Potestas, the power of the patriarch. This gave men the ability to stone or kill or execute their wives and children without a trial. The power of the patriarch, absolute authority. But then the third century rolls around and a Christian emperor named Valentinian outlaws Patria Potestas and elevates women because Jesus elevated and loved women. <laughs> and, and, and Christians essentially led the first Me Too movement. And we should take this one seriously as well. You know, and... Uh, I mean, I could just go on. Uh, people talk about the Council of Nicaea. It was this conspiracy. It was this conspiracy to suppress people in the Council of Nicaea and Constantine. You know what really happened in the Council of Nicaea? They said that everywhere a church is opened, there will be a public hospital opened. That's what they said. That's the legacy of our faith. That's the legacy of Christianity. I could just go on and on and on about this, about how Frederick Douglass and William Wilberforce, when they fought slavery in, in, in England and in the United States, uh, over two-thirds of the abolitionists were pastors and preachers. And, and how, uh, you know, I just want to point out that, like, Frederick Douglass and William Wilberforce don't get up there and say, like, hey, we need to make America more secular Look at all these Christians. Christianity is the problem. Slavery, look at all this. Christianity, they, they, they don't say Christianity is the problem and secularism is the solution. They say hypocrisy is the problem and a deeper Christianity is the solution. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this. He said, 
Man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons or a wisp of smoke from the limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God, made in his image. Therefore, we must, he must be respected as such. All right. So our first two points were, um, I'm a person of reason and science, not a person of faith. Our second point, took a long time, but I thought it was worthwhile, was that uh, more harm has been done in the name of religion than any other thing. Our next point is this. All religions are basically the same. People say nobody knows the truth. Nobody knows the truth. You can't know the truth. You just have to pick the belief that's right for you. You know, all religions teach morality. They teach self-reflection. They teach generosity to the poor. They bring compassion. They bring community. Just pick the religion that's right for you. You got to see this though. When you claim that nobody knows the truth, you yourself are claiming to know the truth that nobody else knows. When a secular person comes to you and says, it's wrong to tell other people what to believe, in that moment they're telling you what to believe. <laughs> and religions are not basically the same. They're superficially the same. They're fundamentally different. I'll just breeze through this super fast. Islam says that Jesus was not the son of God. Actually, on the Dome of the Rock, where my dad is. Happy birthday, Dad. It's my dad's birthday. I love you, Dad. He's in Israel right now. But at the Dome of the Rock, it says that God has no sons. He's neither begotten nor begets. It says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he didn't rise from the dead. And eight times in the Quran, it says, Allah does not love sinners. Allah does not love sinners. Eight times in the Quran. That's a little bit different than Christianity, which actually says Muslims are made in God's image. We need to love Muslims. We need to love our neighbor. Samaritans were, were kind of like the Muslim equivalent of their day. We need to love them. But, but it says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go to Buddhism. Buddhism, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, um, he said that that uh, he basically saw the suffering in the world, and he said that suffering was a result of desire. And that if you would just rid yourself of all desire, you could dissolve basically the self, the soul, and suffering and become one with the cosmic all. And the, and the, the word for nirvana means the extinguishing of a candle. That the only reason why you suffer is because you have attachments. If you would just detach yourself from everything, yourself would be dissolved and you'd become one with the cosmic call. Siddhartha Gautama, on the night that he left to go seek enlightenment, his son was born. One what he named his son? Rahula. It means shackle. Because that's what Buddhism teaches. That anything you love, anything you desire, anything you care for is a shackle and that you need to strip yourself of all desire. That is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that every self has innate dignity and value. I mean, that's why human rights didn't grow up in the East. Hinduism. Hinduism says that if you're suffering in life, it's because you deserve it. See that poor guy on the street? He's poor because he did some bad stuff in a previous life. And he deserves what he's getting. And, and, and as the caste system, and, and it is... You know, it says everything in life is what you deserve. People say, I believe in karma. Want to know what the Sanskrit word for karma is? Karma means works. 
It's literally what it means. Now tell me if all religions are basically the same. When Paul writes this in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, we live in this culture that's obsessed with boasting. We have whole social media platforms devoted to boasting. Like, that's what we do. We love boasting, talking about ourselves. But Jesus shows the flip side of what works leads to and what self-righteousness leads to. In Luke 6, 18, 9, he says this. He spoke this story, this parable, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You should go read it. Luke 18 is one of the clearest teachings of justification by faith in all of the Bible. But he tells a story about a super religious guy, a Pharisee, and a tax collector. Tax collectors were like loan sharks. They were like thugs, bro. They were like mafia. They even had the Sicilian connection, right? But the mafia guy, he beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. But it says that the Pharisees, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. I just got to say this really quick. If you try to obey the Bible without remembering the gospel, you will just become a better Pharisee. If you try to obey the Bible without remembering the gospel, you'll become a better Pharisee. You think, oh, I can never become a Pharisee. This church is awesome. If churches Paul started can become Pharisees, what makes us think that we can't? We all can But this is what I want to articulate is this. If you believe you're going to heaven or paradise or nirvana because you're good or disciplined or enlightened, you will look down on people who are bad, undisciplined, and unenlightened. If you believe you are going to heaven or paradise or nirvana because you are good, disciplined or enlightened, you will look down on people who are bad, undisciplined, and unenlightened. But if you believe you're going to heaven because God shows grace to his enemies, you won't look down on anyone. All right, one final thought is that I don't need to go to church because spirituality is personal. If you Google the words, follow your heart, follow your heart, you will get 1,630,000 results. And I love how Google always likes to brag. And I did it in 0.11 seconds. It's like, okay, Google, so fancy. But that's what our culture says. Follow your heart. Hey, I don't need to go to church. Spirituality is personal. I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I don't need to go to church. But here's the deal. Let me just share some words with you really fast. Some really important theological words from our culture. I wish I could be the perfect daughter. But I still come to the waters. I still come to the waters. No one knows how far it goes. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Let it go. Let it go. Don't hold back anymore. Everybody on this island has their place on the island. 
every single Disney movie tells us what our culture believes in. You have a little princess, little frozen princess. And I let my kids watch Disney movies. Don't turn into some Pharisee, okay? <laughs> but you have a little ice princess or a little rabbit or a little Hawaiian girl or a little Mexican boy. And he's in this repressive culture that's traditional and wants to fit him into a role, her into a role. But she starts to follow her heart. And she starts to break free. And she starts to go her own way. And she saves the day. And that's what our culture is. Because we live not in a traditional culture. We live in an individualistic culture. But this obsession with individuality obliterates community. And when everyone decides spiritual truth for themselves, we have nothing to share. If everyone's going their own way, we end up alone. And that's why the American Psychological Association in the past years has been, has been calling out an alert saying that a public health crisis that we are facing that's as serious as obesity and smoking is loneliness. Loneliness. Loneliness will shorten your life expectancy the same amount as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness will kill you. Millennials are the loneliest at all. Because loneliness has nothing to do with popularity. It has everything to do with vulnerability. You can have lots of people who know you and be texting lots of people and have all kinds of people on your social media. You can have lots of people you know, but nobody who really knows you. Because it's incredibly easy in our technological individualistic culture to share your strengths, but it's very difficult to share your weaknesses. And so we're horribly alone. But I got to let you know this. Jesus came into a divided, racist, tribal culture where people worshiped the family. And Jesus said, don't worship the family. Worship me. And I'll show you that God's a father and that all people are sisters and brothers. And it was revolutionary. Jesus didn't say follow your family or follow your country or follow your political party. Jesus didn't come and say follow your heart. Jesus came and said follow me. And it changed the world forever. You know, 60 times the New Testament tells us to one another, to pray for one another, to, to help one another, to serve one another, to show compassion to one another, to challenge one another. Jesus said the most important thing is that us Christians would love one another. And some of us, and some of our family members, some of the people we know, we have this idea like, you know, I'm into church, I'm into Jesus, I'm just not into church. Or, you know, I can follow Jesus by myself. But if you are following Jesus by yourself, you are not following Jesus. You are following yourself. Because Jesus said that we'd be known by our love for one another. And the community that you're looking for is here. Because we're not a community built on race. We're not a community built on class. We're not a community built on the fact that uh, we're hipsters and they're losers. 
or we're jocks and they're nerds. We're a community based on one simple fact. That we're all equally sinners. And that we're all equally saved by grace. Um, You know, they say turbulence is worse at the back of the plane. And I don't want to offend you in the back of the room. But if you're having doubts, maybe it's because you're kind of on the back of the plane. You, You don't have community. You don't have people rallying around you. I just want to encourage you to do that, to, to be a part of community, to, to, to be in a connect group, to serve on a team, to be a part of the body. That, that's, that's what our world really needs. I'll close just with a story. I'll keep it very brief. But people say, you know, if you accept truth claims that you have the ultimate truth, you will automatically exclude people outside of your group. But I would say that depends on what that ultimate truth is. What if that ultimate truth that you accept, that your community is based on, is a person who died forgiving his enemies? What if that's your ultimate truth? A few years ago, a man named Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, went into a Methodist church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine black people. But the secular world didn't even know what to do when over and over again, the members of that church came out and said things like, Nadine Collier, the daughter of Ethel Lance, came out and said things like this, I forgive you. You took something precious away from me. I will never hear her voice on earth again. I'll never be able to hold her here again, but I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people. But God forgive you. I forgive you. If you accept that exclusive truth claim into the center of your life, it'll change everything. Father, I pray tonight that this helped. I pray that maybe people who are in a place of doubt that this helped them realize that you are the logic behind the universe, that you're a logical God. And you're not just a God of logic, you're also a God of love. I thank you for this chance and this opportunity. I pray that this message would go out and reach many, many, many people who need to hear this in our culture. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.